Hello and welcome to the Beaver Pod. Today we've got with us regular uh, attendee Lucy Grieve and World Horse Welfare and Beaver Council trustee uh, Roly Owers. Hi both. Hi there. Hi there. So parish news to begin with. We at the beginning of this week had European Antibiotic Awareness Day um, and Beaver continues with its survey for antimicrobial use. We've also released this, a group of short webinars on the learning platform on rational antimicrobial therapy. Um, we are highlighting the no antibiotic prescription form, which is available on the Protect Me uh, website. And that's it's proven in the human healthcare system and in the small animal side of things to placate those owners who want antibiotics but don't really need them. Um, we have also put together an online collection of EVJ articles, uh, nine papers under the title Antimicrobials in an Age of Resistance, um, to hope contribute to the knowledge of appropriate antimicrobial use in our patients. Uh, so that's the antimicrobial awareness stuff, uh, very important. Also, we have launched online Pete Ramzan's Field Guide to the Flex DP Fetlock Radiography Manual. Um, that's on the website and you can access it pretty effectively on your smartphone so you can take it with you in the field. Uh, that's good news. Uh, but sad news this week is that we have very um, sadly lost former Beaver president Chris House and our thoughts go out to all his, his friends and family and we will miss Chris dearly. Um, last item of news is that the BHA have updated their requirements for equine influenza. So um, the current vaccination requirements for all horses on racecourse property will remain in place for until the end of 2020. So that effectively means that all horses will need a compliant EI vaccination within nine calendar months. So that's eight months plus one month's grace for those of you who are not very good at maths um, of the day of the race in which they're, they're entered. Um, however, and I think a really positive move is that the European Horse Racing Scientific Liaison Committee uh, has suggested and proposed some changes which will harmonise the flu vaccination intervals um, across the racing jurisdictions of Europe. And I think that could be a really positive uh, move. Roly, that's something that we've been talking about for a long time, isn't it? It is. I mean, if you want more people to... Uh, vaccinate the horses and you know reputedly it's only 30 percent of our population then you've got to make it as simple as possible and having different disciplines having different intervals and different booster requirements makes it impossible really because many people have horses that do different things so yeah making it as simple and, and harmonizing it easy as possible must help us get more horses vaccinated great and and this is a subject that um that I listened to being debated at your World Horse Welfare Conference last week, which is a brilliant conference, but one of the topics that was raised was who's responsible for increasing the late rate of vaccination, flu vaccination uptake in the, in the UK herd. 
Do you want to give us a bit of background to, to that? Yeah, well, we, the, the conference debated about sort of responsibility more generally, but very specifically around flu vaccinations. As I said, you know, only 30% of the flu of our population reputedly are vaccinated. Obviously, we've had well over 200 outbreaks this year involving a lot, many, a lot more horses. So it was a question, it was just asking who is responsible. And obviously, as vets, we have that a, a really important role to play, as well as the owner. But then if you, actually, if you look at it more broadly, you can look at it from a government level, you can look at it from a pharmaceutical level, you can look at it from transporter level, because many of these cases this year have been horses that have been imported or travel into new yards. So actually, you think it's just the owner or just a vet, but actually it involves a lot of different people. And if we are going to increase that 30% to get near to a level where we, you can get sort of decent uh, levels of vaccination, it's got to be over 80% to get herd uh, immunity, then we've got a long way to go. Absolutely. Uh, Lucy, what do you, you know, you're out on the road all day long. Uh, I suspect, suspect you do a fair few vaccinations. Do you, do you feel a responsibility? Absolutely, yeah. And where I, where I encounter people that are against vaccinating or at least have believe that it's not required for like retired ponies or their horse doesn't go anywhere or, you know, it's it was done a lot when it was younger. Surely its immunity is absolutely fine now. I do feel very strongly that we try and educate those people because I think unless you start trying one person at a time, you are never going to get anywhere. Um, and there's also that social kind of um, responsibility. You know, it's not just you that you're putting yourself at risk. It's your neighbour's horse or your livery friend's horse you know and that sort of education must be done by everyone in order to get the response that we need absolutely that that message was something that was raised by one of the panelists really wasn't it that that actually we're very good as vets at at raising the scientific reasons why you should vaccinate but perhaps we should be thinking a bit more about our clients as consumers and we should be providing them with a different message as to why they should vaccinate well, I think also, yes, there was a discussion around whether, you know, practices should discount, you know, the vaccination. And of course, lots of people think it's expensive, but actually very much the, the message was actually vets need to make, we need to make that opportunity when we vaccinate a horse. It's just not going in and, and giving it the vaccine and moving off again. But that's a chance to interact with that owner. As Lucy just says, it's not just that owner. It's interact because a lot of the owners in these livery yards are going to be sort of ambassadors that everyone else looks up to them. So if you can convince that individual that, you know, vaccine and, and routine and preventative healthcare measures are the right thing to do, then it, you get that trickle effect. And I think we've got to look a lot of different ways to try and get that 30% up to 80%. But there's a lot of people who have very definitive views in the horse world, and they're pretty vocal about uh, about t- telling us about them. And that's why it's so, <laughs> it's so important that we convince those people that, they're, that, that, that uh, vaccination is the right way forward. Absolutely. And cost, I think, is, you know, people always talk about cost. Uh, and Lucy, uh, PPE time, you know, uh, particularly if you're importing, if you're buying youngsters, maybe particularly if those youngsters are coming um, over the Irish Sea, you're getting horses coming into the country that are or being bought that aren't have had no vaccinations. Should we be should we be encouraging owners or potential buyers to have horses vaccinated during PPE? I think we certainly need to encourage them to ensure that that horse is vaccinated before they bring it over. The only issue we do face uh, from a sort of legal standpoint is the person, the vet attending the PPE, the vetting, 
um, is a bit con- conflicted in terms of whether they can treat that horse because, of course, they're acting and working for the buyer who doesn't yet legally own the horse. You know, no money's been parted um, between the two the two parties. So it's a bit tricky to, to try and say that the, the buyer should be getting the horse vaccinated when they don't yet own it. So what would be a better t- sort of approach to take is to encourage buyers to say, I will buy your horse, but it needs to be vaccinated before I will take it and, and, and pay you for it. And I think yeah. that 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 will change things quite dramatically because if someone wants to sell a horse, they should be doing what they need to do in order to, to take that sale forward. Absolutely. And uh, Roly, uh, another thing that was, or uh, another area where responsibility was questioned um, was the pharmaceutical companies. Should the pharmaceutical companies be reducing the cost of of flu vaccination. Well, the point that was made very well is the fact that obviously, as we know, flu is mutating the whole time and therefore it's changing. And so you're not just buying when you buy the vaccine, you're not just buying today's vaccine, but you're also buying the fact that actually the pharmaceuticals can invest in the future. Um, and I think that's really yeah. important to recognise that, you know, it's expen- we know it's expensive to create these vaccines. And therefore, there's got to be an understanding that it's not just for today, but it's for tomorrow. And we, we know we've had a warning sign this year. There have been cases, not many, admittedly. And we know that in the cases in vaccinated animals, the, the, the clinical signs have been a lot less but this is a warning sign that actually maybe you know we need to be in the pharmaceuticals need to be bringing in updated vaccines for influenza because we know over time it will change absolutely uh, and you know we, there's lots of lots of reasons why people should vaccinate one of the most common ones um, and probably one of the reasons why most people vaccinate is that they have to because that's what the sporting authorities say they must do um, but but there's quite a variation in in guidance or rules amongst those sporting bodies, isn't there, Lucy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I looked at this just a couple of years ago and tr- tried to draw out a simple crib sheet that, that distinguished the differences between the different sporting bodies, and it was horrendous. I mean, the process was it nearly drove me insane. You know, the the, the tiny little minutiae of, of of differences were were really could, could throw you into a spin, and so. The idea of harmonising rules across these different regulatory bodies and these different comp- competitive bodies would just make life so much simpler. It would c- reduce confusion. You'd have far fewer people ending up out of date and getting cross because they've got to restart. And then everyone will take flu vaccine as a much easier thing to, to take on board and to stick to rather than finding it a complete you know, nightmare from, from start to finish. Absolutely. So, you know, so the stick, we know the stick is fairly fairly useful it's finding a suitable carrot for you know mrs miggins who has her two retired ponies in the paddock how important roly do you think it is that we persuade mrs miggins that both of those horses need to be vaccinated every year well, I think the, the the challenge is as soon as you make exclusions, then you you create yourself a problem. And so, I think absolutely it is. It, it we, we do need to look at it on a risk basis clearly. And if you're transporting your horse around the uh, around the country doing a lot of competitions, though they're going to be mixing with a lot more horses, and therefore their risk is higher. So we can debate whether they should be vaccinated every six months or every year. But um, outside that, you know, we it, 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 there's pretty good scientific proof to say that you know. It's 
certainly when you're getting up to a year, your level of, of protection is, is going uh, b- below a satisfactory uh, level and therefore you, it does need re- um, um, revaccinating. And I t- so as soon as you create those loopholes, then, then you lose the ability to really convince the, 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 the wider stakeholder, wider horse owners of that, that that's what they need to do. So you, t- you talked about loopholes there. So do you think it's something that government should get involved in? Personally, no, I don't think so. Influenza has been around for for eons. It will be around for for, for eons to come. And therefore, flu vaccination is one of those sort of primary sort of things. And Lucy's already mentioned it. It's about responsible ownership. And so don't buy a horse unless it's properly vaccinated. And I think that's the measure you need to get into, the fact that it's just basic responsible ownership. Yeah. And something you mentioned a couple of times, um, roles with transporters and I know World Horse Welfare has a long history of um, understanding how some transporters work but but clearly there's been an issue with uh, with flu this year and transport. Yeah, they have. And, we, and we, we can see it on the daily updates from the Animal Health Trust, the fact that a lot of these animals, they're not all coming from Ireland, but a lot of them are coming from significant distance away into yards of a mixed vaccina- vaccination status yards. And so, you know, clearly you got, it's it, the, the what you need to do is get the transporters at least to get them to ask the question so people sort of understand the risks that they're taking. But I, 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 I fear, I don't know, but I fear that a lot of these people are, are not asking the question. And of course, we know if we're transporting them several hundred miles, that, especially if they're not that used to travelling, that's a very stressful experience. And that's very also very proven. And therefore, they're far more likely to p- pick up disease, influenza being a primary one. So, Lucy, you, you know, you're at the sharp end of all this. Why do you think people are, are not prepared to routinely vaccinate their horses, particularly the young stock, particularly the stock that are moving around the country? I think that the, the primary excuse I, I tend to get is is, is the, the, the cost. They simply don't see because the, the risk isn't immediate to them necessarily even despite the outbreaks we had this year, that, you know, unless they physically have seen a horse with flu or they know somebody that's had a horse with, with flu, that they don't see it as a tangible risk. Therefore, spending that bit of money is is not a, a priority to them. And, and, you know, you do hear time and time again, well, you know, I've never seen any flu. It's, you know, they're, they're a bit suspicious, if I'm honest, that it's just a money-making scheme by sort of vets and pharmaceutical companies. Um, and you see that on the forums, don't you? You know, these, yeah. these online forums. So I think that is a real issue. It's a lack of education. It's a bit of mistrust. And there is the inevitable, you know, unwillingness to spend the money if they can possibly avoid it. So, Which I think we probably all think is, you know, given the amount it costs to look after a horse, an extra few quid for a vaccination is a pretty small price to pay. Yeah. Uh, I think from a personal perspective, what staggers me more than anything is that people not only not vaccinating against flu, but not va- vaccinating against tetanus, which mm-hmm. seems bonkers for a whole different reason. Yeah. yeah. And then you only have to see a horse with tetanus to realise that that is just not something you want to even take the risk on. Um, so I think education of, of how it goes wrong is, is key, isn't it, at the end of the day? Absolutely. So... Should we be doing a better job, Roly? I think everyone needs to do a better job. If you've only got 30% of horses vaccinated, clearly, absolutely, yes. And I just think we, we're learning so much about human behaviour change. And I think that's what we need to do here. We need to shift people's understanding. And, and so they really do under, sort of reflect it in their behaviour. And so it becomes the norm to vaccinate. It comes to the norm to have sort of proper preventative health care. And so absolutely, but I think 
what what it is is a collective responsibility. It's not just vets, but as vets, we've got to play our part. Probably the perfect place to finish. Rolls, thank you very much. Lucy, thank you. We're going to say goodbye to you now, Lucy. Um, and Rolls, we're going to keep you on the line to talk to us about how you've ended up as Chief Executive for World Horse Welfare. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks very much, guys. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. So, Roly, thanks for staying on. Uh, we're now going to delve into into your background. Um, <laughs> so, did, growing up, did you always want to be a vet? Yeah, well, I, I decided when I was 12 I wanted to be a vet. Everyone at school came in and said, oh, I'm going to be a diamond dealer, I'm going to be a banker. And I, I mean, I, I'd ridden all, lot, lots of my life ever since I was four and been surrounded by animals, had a mad Irish mother. And, and uh, so I thought, well, I'll be a vet. Sounds like a good idea. And I was better at sciences than I was at art and um, <laughs> was lucky enough to get a, a place at college. Fab. And, and clearly, if you the rest of your school contemporaries were going to be diamond dealers or bankers, you went to a very smart school. Um, <laughs> I don't think they've ended up being bankers and diamond dealers. <laughs> so, so you applied and got a place where? I was lucky enough to go to Cambridge, St. Catherine's College, and then out of the vet school. I had six very happy years. Brilliant. Um, and coming to the end of vet school, what were your plans I see. I didn't have any plans. I got to the end of my fifth year. Obviously, Cambridge students take it one year longer than everywhere else to, to qualify as vets. And uh, so at the end of my fifth year, I thought, blimey, what am I going to do? And I, I hadn't actually really thought. I mean, I did, obviously, having ridden, I was always had a, some far more of an equine focus. Um, but I really didn't. I thought, what, what am I? And then someone mentioned to me, uh, well, because I, I had got quite involved with a, a charity as a volunteer. Um, and so I said, oh, I want to try and sort of incorporate that in my in my my starting career and someone said oh, have you thought of the army so I thought absolutely not so I went I, I looked into joining the Royal Army Veterinary Corps and that's what I did and um, so what did you do there what were your what how did you start and what what experiences did you have there oh I loved it I spent seven years in the army I managed to do a master of science degree on nutrition and public health I managed to serve in Northern Ireland for a year uh, and that was looking that was mainly around dogs so it was the army dog unit in Northern Ireland so the military working dogs um and then after that came to to Knightsbridge and I was for three years I was a household cavalry um mounted regiment vet and after that, my last couple of years was as a staff officer, veterinary officer up in Melton Mowbray, which is sort of the, the depot for all, all military animals, dogs and, and horses. So you spent a, spent a little while poncing around the, the parks. Well, I never ponced. I rode extremely people. effectively. Um, but no, I have to say, I was very lucky. You'd, <laughs> you'd ride around Hyde Park, so 6.30 in the morning, and you'd think, I'm getting paid for doing this. It was it was a lovely – I love my time at the House of Recovery. I mean, after three years, you, you, you were – it was quite repetitive in terms of how the year went. So it, you probably, you couldn't do it forever, but my three years there, I absolutely loved. Fantastic. So coming to the end of that, you'd obviously got a bit of a different um, breadth of experience to most vets seven years qualified. What did you decide to do then and why? Well, I sort of got married, moved house and changed jobs. So I mean, I was coming out of the army anyway. And again, I sort of, because of this sort of charity background, a job at what was the International League of Protection of Horses came up and actually as a fundraising job. And I, through the, the volunteer position I'd had previously, I'd got a basic understanding of fundraising. So I went into the charity world as a fundraiser. And, and that's where my sort of veterinary clinical veterinary career ended and um i i started a whole new journey down down working for not-for-profits 
So did you, a fascinating change, did you, um, did you st- stay with the International League for the Protection of Horses, what's now World Horse Welfare? I, I, st- I was with them for four years and then my, I, I love fundraising. Most people think fundraising is a dark art to it. There's not. You just talk to people and, and you sort of chat to people about the cause and, and, and get involved in the cause. And I really enjoyed it. So I, I, I wanted to sort of hone my skills, if that's the right term, around fundraising. So I went to work for a school in Cambridge to run a capital appeal for them, which I did for four years. Um, and again, really enjoyed that. Fab. And then, and then lured back to Norfolk? <laughs> well, I, the job, I wanted to go and work for sort of a mainstream charity and I wanted to ideally be chief executive, but it was one of those things. You could only be chief executive if you had prior experience, but you couldn't get prior experience. You necessarily got appointed. But so when the job at, at ILPH to become World Horse Welfare came up, I thought, well, maybe I've got a chance here because at least they know me. And uh, luckily that gamble paid off. So they knew you, but and that didn't put them off. <laughs> Which is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've you've really built that charity into a force to be reckoned with now. And I think you, from from what I see, you've you've got involved in huge amounts of areas where your veterinary skills are are really important. Well, I mean, obviously, the the, the growth of World Source Welfare has been very much a team effort. But you're absolutely right. We wanted to sort of to expand it and having that sort of that veterinary background. And a lot of what we do is sort of policy, you know, working with DEFRA around animal um, equine health and welfare issues. Having that sort of veterinary background has certainly really helped me. And you, you're also chair of the UK Equine Disease Coalition, aren't you? What's that? Well, that was set up. There was a, the um, an initiative uh, run to establish uh, African horse sickness control strategy back in the good old days when sort of government had money and that they invested and and, and uh, supported that. But then, obviously, after 2010 and and well, 28 sort of financial crash, all of these things came down, and so it was very much sector led. So I just tried to keep that going and engage um, a sort of a group of of vets who can really help advise government around disease and that's as simple as that and it's worked very well brilliant brilliant and you're now involved with also the the latest eva outbreak you were sort of that group was closely involved with wasn't it Absolutely. And just very much learning the lessons from how the 1995 order, you know, was fine up to a point. But, you know, clearly what happened in 1995 doesn't necessarily work what happens in 2019. And, and that order very much needs updating. And we're, we're working with DEFRA, obviously, once the election is over, uh, to, to, to look at changing that. Right. So that's obviously a really long way from, I suspect, what you imagined you'd be doing when you were 12 years old. But any regrets about your choice of career? No, not at all. I mean, obviously, when people talk about vets, they think that everyone's a clinical vet. And I and I love the clinical work. And I sometimes do miss that. But the, my current job, no two days are the same. And I guess many people would say that. But I really love the variety and, and the, the spectrum of the work that World Horse Welfare does both in this country and, and around the world makes ma- makes it really worthwhile. And I and I've, I work with a great team. And I so it's a, it's a, it's, I'm a very lucky lad. Brilliant. Perhaps perfect place to stop that on. Roly, thank you very much. No, it's great to speak. Thank you very much too.